Welcome to the podcast that takes you back in time to rewind and relive all things nostalgia in the world of professional wrestling. Get ready to go beyond the bell. With your host, ring announcer, Sean Beckerman. Welcome, my pro wrestling family. It's that time once again to hop in that DeLorean to rewind and relive all things retro in wrestling. Welcome back to Beyond the Bell. I'm your host, Sean Beckerman, ready to take you back to relive old school professional wrestling. Students, class is in session. We open up our textbooks to the very first chapter of WCW 101, The History of World Championship Wrestling. This is episode one of the very first season of Beyond the Bell. At one time, the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance, was one of, if not the largest and most powerful organization in professional wrestling for over 40 years, for over four decades. On this edition, we go back in time to relive the beginning of the NWA and how professional wrestling came to be. So for you new fans or younger fans out there, there would be no WCW if there were no NWA. On this edition, we go back even further than just WCW as we talk about the early days, the early stages of professional wrestling as an art form as well, and it leads right into the birth of the National Wrestling Alliance. So buckle up. After this quick break, we take you back in time to Chapter 1, The Birth of the Alliance. TuneIn Premium has all the radio you want for $7.99 a month. That's all the radio you want for $7.99 a month. That means every single Major League Baseball game, every single NFL game, the most massive collection of commercial-free radio stations in the world, over 5.5 million podcasts, and unlimited access to 40,000 audiobooks. Download the TuneIn Radio app for a free 7-day trial of TuneIn Premium. TuneIn Premium. Boundless Audio. Welcome back to Beyond the Bell. Wrestling is mankind's oldest sport. We know for a fact it went back at least 4,500 years. The oldest piece of literature is the Epic of Gilgamesh. In the Bible, the Lord God sends the angel down to wrestle, not to play golf, soccer, or basketball. He sends him down to wrestle Jacob. We go back to the very origins of, of society. Wrestling is this magnificent sport with a warrior background between one man, one man, one woman, one woman. Babe Lincoln wrestled. And it was a catch-as-catch-can style of wrestling, frontier style. So there's no sport that has the tradition that wrestling does. But it wasn't until the dawn of the 20th century that the sport crowned a world champion. There's several versions on how the, the world championship came into existence. In Europe, about 1898 to the early uh, 1900s, came a wrestler by the name of George Hackenschmidt. Hackenschmidt was a genetic freak, and I say that in a very kind sense. 
He spoke seven languages. He ended up late in his life. He went on the lecture circuit and he challenged Albert Einstein to even debate his theory of relativity. I don't think Einstein ever accepted. But Hackenschmidt also had a fantastic physique. He was incredibly strong. At the age of 20, he was clean and jerking over 360 pounds, which was amazing back then. So Hackenschmidt started entering amateur Greco-Roman tournaments. And, and Greco-Romans are really static type of wrestling, very calculating, kind of like a chess match and not a lot of movement and, and tightening up. And he had an un, unstoppable bear hug. When George Hackenschmidt, whose nickname was the Russian Lion, got an inside bear hug or an inside trip and took you to your back, there was almost no defense for it. So Hackenschmidt became acknowledged as the world champion all through the early 1900s, based primarily on his great amateur status and the fact that when, he, when pro wrestling started to draw big crowds in London and all over Europe, Hackenschmidt demolished everybody. He came to America and wrestled the great Tom Jenkins. Tom Jenkins was a very physical style of wrestler, but he wrestled a more wide open style known as catch wrestling. Jenkins was considered the best catch wrestler in the world, and Hackenschmidt was considered the best Greco wrestler in the world. When Hackenschmidt came to America, he wrestled Jenkins in a Greco match and beat him easily. Then he wrestled him in a catch match and beat him easily. So at that point, it's acknowledged by everybody. George Hackenschmidt, the great Russian lion, is the heavyweight champion of the world. Hackenschmidt remained undefeated until 1908, when he took on an Iowa farm boy named Frank Gotch. Thousands packed Chicago's Dexter Park Pavilion as the two men wowed the crowd for over two hours. Gotch finally emerged victorious when Hackenschmidt surrendered to an ankle lock submission. People stormed into the ring, they threw an American flag over him, they carried him out of the ring. America had a new sporting hero. The popularity of Frank Gotch set off a movement among high schools and colleges to take up the sport all across the United States. And YMCA's, wrestling was very big in the YMCA's in the early 1900s. At one time, the National Wrestling Alliance was the largest and most powerful wrestling organization for over 40 years. But today, it consists of over a dozen independent promotions that draw less than 100 people at their cards. Even TV tapings for NWA Wildside in Nashville, which the last few times you could check drew about 50 fans, that is until the Jarrett's came in the summer of 2002 and created total nonstop action, TNA Wrestling, and started airing weekly pay-per-views using the NWA name and titles in an attempt to become a strong alternative to the world wrestling entertainment. And so far, they've been doing an admirable job that you could say that is being very conservative with the review. So it looks like there possibly could be hope for the NWA. That's what you thought. Until Total Nonstop Action separated themselves from the NWA a few years ago, and the NWA still is being seen on a more local, independent level. World Championship Wrestling was an American professional wrestling promotion which, in proper form, existed from 1988 to 2001. Although the name World Championship Wrestling has been used as a brand and television show by various National Wrestling Alliance affiliated promotions, 
most notably Georgia Championship Wrestling and Jim Crockett Promotions, since 1983, it was not until five years later that an actual NWA affiliate promotion called World Championship Wrestling appeared on a national scene, under the ownership of Atlanta, Georgia-based media mongol Ted Turner. That is when WCW came about. But we're going to look back at the entire history of WCW, which also predates to the National Wrestling Alliance. Therefore, part one of the WCW 101 series will look back at the birth of the Alliance. The two most popular sports in America at the turn of the century were boxing and wrestling. You've got to remember, there was almost no basketball then, if, if any. Golf was non-existent. Pro football was just struggling. They'd get crowds of three or 400. Baseball was coming along. They had some home run Baker and Ty Cobb was just starting out. This is way before the days of Babe Ruth. So boxing and wrestling were the two top spectator sports in America, along with horse racing. Chicago's brand new Comiskey Park drew over 30,000 people for the rematch. The crowd saw Frank Gotch retain his title against the Russian Lions. At that point, it was the largest crowd ever to see an athletic event in America other than a horse race. Gotch was a national sensation, even receiving an invitation to the White House to meet Theodore Roosevelt. Frank Gotch, who went seven years without losing a fall, let alone a match, and won 88 matches in a row. You look back and see what he accomplished. He's the greatest there ever was in my book. Holding on to the title until 1913 when he retired. Gotch unexpectedly died four years later at the age of 39 due to kidney failure. Ed the Strangler Lewis won the title on December 13, 1920. The Roaring Twenties is considered one of the most prosperous times in American history. America was booming and the world's wrestling champion Ed Lewis fit in perfectly with the decade's new star-studded icon. Ed Strangler Lewis was a superstar. Ed Strangler Lewis was as big as a rock star is today in wrestling way back. And he was a great champion. He'd go to towns, and if they wanted him to talk to the Rotary Club, he'd talk to the Rotary Club. And he was qualified to do it. But Ed Lewis had the ability to go to towns and do things besides wrestle. The champion has got to be a champion in the ring and he's got to be a champion in the schools. I think probably the greatest wrestler of all times was Ed Strangler-Lewis. He was a world's champion, and he was great. They called him Strangler because he used a strangle hold. First illegal hold you ever heard of in the wrestling business, and that was a strangle hold. In the early 1920s, when Ed Strangler-Lewis was the heavyweight champion of the world and was virtually unbeatable. He also was very, very boring to watch. He had a great nickname, Strangler-Lewis. But uh, Ed was a very defensive person, very defensive-oriented. He once wrestled Joe Stecker for five hours and 20 minutes. Three referees passed out, and the entire audience was gone by the time the fourth referee called a halt. Joe went right to the hospital for two days, Stecker, to recover. So theatrics became a part of it. There's another element, too. In a real shoot match, somebody's going to get banged up pretty good. And if I have to wrestle twice a week to earn a living, and you break my arm or cauliflower my ear or something so I can't get on the mat for five or six weeks, I've lost the ability to earn money to 
to raise my family, to feed my family. And so they had to decide what was more important, to have real matches to determine who was the best, or if they were really there to entertain the public and draw money. At the turn of the century, there was one world champion, when George Hackenschmidt, who was the European Greco-Roman champion, defeated American champion Tom Jenkins on May 4, 1905 in New York City to become the first world's champion. He held the title until losing it to Frank Gotch on April 8, 1908 in Chicago. Gotch was regarded as the greatest wrestler of his time. And in 1913, Gotch retired, and then the title became fragmented for the next three decades. All the promoters across the country had their own versions of the world title, like the New York World title, which went back and forth between Joe Stetcher and Ed Strangler-Lewis, Jim Londos, and, and others throughout the early 20s. There was a Boston World title that was held by wrestlers like Lewis, Ed Don George, and Gus Sonnenberg. There was an Omaha world title that was held mainly by Charlie Cutler, Stetcher, and Londos. And there was, of course, a Los Angeles version of the world title held by Londos and Bronco Nagurski. This was the way it was throughout the 20s and the 30s. There were a few dominant wrestlers who held most of these titles at one time or another. However, there were some attempts at untangling the web of world championships. In 1929, the National Wrestling Association, the wrestling arm of the National Boxing Association, was created. And Gus Sonnenberg won by beating Strangler Lewis, and for the most part of it, was recognized as the true world championship. However, there were several times where if a wrestler won the title that wasn't approved for one reason or another by the different promoters, those promoters would still have their own version of a world champion. This is the title that was held by the likes of Dick Shakat, Jim Londos, Everett Marshall, and Steve Casey. And this was the version of the title that Luthez held of the first few of his six world title reigns. However, one man would take charge to change all of this and have one world champion once and for all. In 1948, St. Louis promoter Sam Mushnick decided enough was enough and basically decided to sort out the wrestling picture once and for all. He and several Midwest promoters, which included P.L. Pinky George from Des Moines, Orville Brown from Kansas City, Tony Stetcher from Chicago, Al Haft, and Harry Light from Ohio, got together and agreed to work together to recognize one world champion. And to get around strict U.S. antitrust laws, they formed the National Wrestling Alliance. And the sweet part of the, basically the deal was that each promoter would run their own territory as they saw fit and have their own stars and championships. They would have one world champion who would go to each territory and defend against the promoter's top stars, with that territory paying the world champion a percentage of the gate, usually anywhere between 8 to 15% of the particular card, as well as pay for his plane ticket to the arena, and it worked like a charm. This event, one fall for the world's heavyweight championship. That was the deal. To be the NWA world champion, it was nothing like it. 
is the greatest night of my life. This is Ric Flair, your world's heavyweight wrestling champion. When you become the heavyweight champion of the world, it's like winning the Oscar. It means you are one of the very best in the world at what we do. The National Wrestling Alliance members named Kansas City wrestler and promoter Orville Brown as the first Alliance world champion on July 14, 1948. And they decided to have a unification match between Brown and National Wrestling Association world champion Luthez, who would be held in St. Louis on November 25th, 1949. And it was believed Brown was scheduled to win that match, but fate would intervene as Brown suffered a career-ending auto accident just weeks before the match on November 27th of 49. Thez was awarded the title as a result, and Thez would spend the next several years unifying other titles to the NWA world title. It was during this era that Lou Thez dominated the sport and was the champion for multiple extended periods. His longest consecutive reign lasted nearly seven years, from November 27, 1949 to March 15, 1956, a record that lasts to present day. Best wrestler of all time in my lifetime, probably Luthez. He could hook you from anywhere, you know, if he wanted to stop you, he could stop you, he could let you go and turn you around and grab it again. He was just one of those guys that had the complete baggage. When you wrestle Fez, you have to keep your head up every foot of the way. Because he's after you all the while. That Fez is as fast as a cat on his feet. He can hit you three times and be away before you know what's done. It's a matter of doing what you enjoy doing. Luthez was awesome. Luthez carried himself as a champion. When he'd come in, he'd have alligator shoes, have the, he'd have the Halliburton luggage, he'd have a suit. His presence was, I am a champion. Lou was my idol. He's the one that sparked my interest in uh, being a professional wrestler. He retained his championship in a rough, tough game by using his head all the way, as well as his wrestling ability. I don't think there's any way you can minimize the impact that television had on wrestling in the early 1950s. It was tremendous. All of a sudden, wrestling, which you didn't get to see unless you it came to your local city, and you went out on a Friday or Saturday night, was in your living room. I can remember growing up as a young kid in the 50s. My mom and dad weren't even sports fans, but every Saturday night we watched professional wrestling from Chicago because it was a happening, it was an event. I would say the most influential wrestler would be Luthez. He took it out of the Stone Ages into the first part of the television. I've been told and I've read that during the late 40s and early 50s, Luthez was on TV more than any other person ever up to that point. More than Milton Burrow or more than Lucille Ball or Superman or Gene Autry or anybody. That Luthez actually for about a five year period there had more visibility on TV than anybody other than a local newscaster. When he was in California wrestling, getting ready to defend the, the world title against Baron Michelle Leone, they were televising Luthez's workouts for an hour every day in the evenings. 
I mean, TV was desperate for programming, and after the news, or before the news, they'd show Lou Thez at his workout uh, down on the Santa Monica Pier. So think of the incredible visibility and credibility the, that gave to professional wrestling. The television exposure translated into huge box office for professional wrestling as the gate for the Fez Leone match in Los Angeles brought in over $100,000. The largest gate for a professional wrestling match at that time. Television also brought its challenges as the audience was craving new faces. As a result, new champions started to emerge, such as Canadian-born Whipper Billy Watson, Edward Carpentier, who was most famous for having trained Andre the Giant, Dick Hutton, who was a three-time NCAA champion at Oklahoma State, and the New Zealander Pat O'Connor. On July 27, 1950, Thez defeated gorgeous George Wagner in Chicago to unify the old Boston-based AWA version of the world title to the NWA world title. On May 21st of 1952, Thez defeated Baron Michel Leone in Los Angeles to merge the California version of the world title. The match drew a record of $103,277 gate, the first gate of over $100,000 in American wrestling history. During this time, other promoters joined the alliance, but and by the 60s and 70s, over a dozen or so promoters in North America were official members of the NWA. Promoters like Don Owen in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, Frank Tunney in Toronto, Bob Geigel in the Central States in Kansas City, Jack Addison in World Class in Dallas, Wally Carbo, Omaha and Minneapolis, Eddie Graham in Florida, and Stu Hart in Stampede, which was in Calgary, Roy Shire, San Francisco, Gene LaBelle in Los Angeles, Dory Funk Sr. in Amarillo, Texas, Joe Blanchard, Southwest in San Antonio, Shioi Baba in All Japan, Steve Ricard, New Zealand and Australia, and Jim Crockett, Mid-Atlantic, Vince McMahon Sr. in the Northwest in New York. And, of course, Jim Barnett and Georgia were all part of the alliance. For the first time in over 40 years, there was an undisputed world champion. It would not last long, though. On June 14th of 1957, Ed Carpentier defeated Lou Thez in Chicago when Thez could not continue due to a back injury. The NWA Board of Directors, however, ruled that the championship could not change hands through an injury and returned the championship to Thez, despite the reversal promoters in Minneapolis, Omaha, and Los Angeles-based World Wrestling Association continued to recognize Carpentier as champion. During all this, Thez went to Japan and defended the NWA World Championship. It was the first ever NWA World title match in Japan on October 7, 1957 and it went to a 60-minute time limit draw. A couple of years later, Vern Gagne defended, or defeated, I should say, Carpentier and claimed to be world champion. However, the NWA ignored the claim. During this time, the NWA world title went from Thez to Dick Hutton to Pat O'Connor, who was the NWA world champion as 1959 began. These Midwest promoters, led by Wally Carbo of Omaha, clamored for a unification match between O'Connor and Gagne. Again, the NWA ignored this. 
So in 1960, these promoters broke away to form the American Wrestling Association, and in a half-hearted attempt as a peace offering, named O'Connor the first AWA world champion. But he had to defend the title against Vern Gagne within 90 days, or he'd be stripped of the championship. Of course, O'Connor ignored the title, and Gagne was awarded the championship in August of 1960. However, the NWA was still recognized as the true world championship. Then, in June 13, 1961, Nature Boy Buddy Rogers defeated Pat O'Connor for the NWA world title in Chicago's Comiskey Park. However, Rogers' bookings were controlled by the Northeast promoter Tootsmont, and Mont rarely let Rogers defend the belt outside of the Northeast. The Northeast promoters, led by Mott and Vince McMahon Sr., had a strained relationship with the rest of the NWA members, mainly because they controlled the biggest U.S. market as far as wrestling concerns, including Madison Square Garden. A man from New Jersey was destined to become a huge star and take advantage of the media super craze, and that was none other than the original Nature Boy, Buddy Rogers. Nature Boy Buddy Rogers was revolutionary especially when network television first came along in the 50s. A bleach blonde guy with a fancy jacket strutting around and telling people he's the greatest. That was revolutionary then. It had never been done. And started to fly off the ropes, but checked himself. And look at that Buddy Rogers strut. He was kind of one of the first guys, I mean, after Gorgeous George, that uh, came out with the strutted. I mean, he had a walk and a... And the cockiness in him that, that, that just flowed. <laughs> and, uh, and But he's a good athlete and a good professional wrestler. Buddy's superstardom led to a title match against the champion Pat O'Connor in front of a record-breaking crowd in Chicago's Comiskey Park. Over 38,000 fans showed up to watch Rogers take the title from O'Connor in a two-out-of-three-falls match that was billed as the match of the century. The attendance record lasted over 25 years, until 1987, when WrestleMania III shattered that mark. There's one thing I want everybody to know, and that is, to a nicer guy, it couldn't happen. I really did love, looked up to Buddy Rogers. I thought he was, he was great. Showmanship and looks and wrestling, everything. He was great. The good Lord made me. He threw them all away when it comes to the wrestling business. I was a big fan of Buddy Rogers. Rogers was a great manipulator and thinker in that ring. Buddy Rogers was one of the most charismatic, energetic, attractive in terms of what he brought to the sport of any wrestler ever. Throughout the first half of the 20th century, the mold for all the world champions were strong athletic types with a solid amateur background. But our new champion was dynamic. The Nature Boy's personality overshadowed his wrestling ability. Rogers was flashy and flamboyant, the antithesis to the workman like Lou Thez. Thez had dominated the sport throughout the early 1950s, but in the latter portion of the decade, Thez began to fade from the world championship picture. But unwilling to hang up his wrestling boots, Thez poised himself for one last run, and in 1963, recaptured the title for a record sixth time 
at the age of 46. There's the belt the Blue's wearing. It's a gorgeous thing that costs some $10,000. It's made of solid gold, silver, and diamonds. Fez was defeated by a young Canadian upstart named Gene Kaniski. Kaniski won the title on his very first try on January 7, 1966, in St. Louis, Missouri, at the Kiel Auditorium in Fez's hometown. Uh, when I beat Fez, I hit him with a backbreaker. I knew I had him, and I started to panic. I said, whatever you do, don't let the wind of anger blow at the later reason. Use your head cool. I knew I had him because I was rescuing his hometown of St. Louis, and I said, they're going to disqualify me. The next thing I realized, my hand was raised in token of victory, and I just, it never hit me until I was in the dressing room, realized I was the new world's heavyweight champion. There's quite a feat, a great Great, great honor beating a legend like Luthez. Hey, the championship meant a lot, but beating Luthez, I think it has to be the highlight of my uh, professional career. Kaniski called himself Canada's greatest athlete, and his impressive credentials backed it up. He was tough. He was like a machine. He kept going and going. Gene may be the new heavyweight champion, but uh, he hasn't gained any popularity by it. They still seem to hate him as much as ever. Kaniski was undefeated for three years. But eventually, the constant travel and pressures wore on Kaniski, who lost his championship to Dury Funk Jr. on February 11, 1969, in Tampa, Florida. And not making excuses, I was defeated in Tampa, Florida. And I'm not to make excuses, but his world championship match, unbeknowing to me or just a mental lapse, because you're going night after night uh, wrestling, and it, was, it wasn't a two out of three fall match, it was one fall match. So Funk got a spinning toll on me, and I just had a mental lapse and not realizing I submitted, which was very foolish. I said, hey, i got two more falls to go. I know I can handle it. Get a little careless. But unfortunately, I have a mental lapse, and it cost me a lot, a lot of money, prestige, and uh, it was quite an embarrassment. Ladies and gentlemen, a new world heavyweight wrestling champion. Dory Funk Jr. from Amarillo, Texas. My father came into the ring and he said, if you do nothing else in professional wrestling, you've accomplished a lot. And that was only the beginning of a four and a half year trip traveling worldwide as NWA World Champion. I really enjoyed my run as NWA World Champion. A lot of people say that the grind of NWA World Champion is too much. It was a blast. <laughs> the heavyweight championship is my livelihood. It puts food on my table, and I'm out to protect it. There were some family stresses that I don't want to ignore, in that it was very tough to be away from your family that much. I have, at the time, I had a wife and three kids. Uh, that part of it was tough. But the in-ring performance, being able to see the wrestling business as I got to see it, was an absolute blast. Nobody has ever retired as, as heavyweight champion of the world. I think I can do it. The champion from West Texas had the second longest uninterrupted reign of any NWA world champion, behind only Lou Thiz. The other NWA promoters, led by Sam Mushnick, were upset at Mont trying to control the championship and decided that Rogers had to drop the title. At that time, 
when a wrestler was chosen to become the NWA World Champion, they were required to put down a deposit, which we learned from Ric Flair, which we will get into later on in the 101 series. Usually anywhere between ten dollars to $25,000. They were told it was an insurance for the actual title belt in case it got lost or stolen. But in reality, it was to prevent double crosses by different promoters and wrestlers that was rampant in the 20s and 30s. And Rogers did not want to lose his $25,000 deposit on the belt, as that was a lot of money in those days, even in today's market it is. So, on January 24, 1963, in Toronto, Luthez defeated Rogers in a one-fall match to regain the NWA world title. The Northeast promoters led by Mont and McMahon refused to recognize the title switch because at the time, most championship matches were two out of three falls. And they broke away and formed the World Wide Wrestling Federation, the WWWF, and named Rogers as their first world champion. Like the NWA, however, the WWWF was considered a regional promotion, and the NWA world title lost little of its luster and was still the world title. Throughout the rest of the, of the 1960s and 70s, the NWA was the largest wrestling organization, and the world champion defended the, t- the, the title belt in all of the territories around the world. In effect, whoever held it was a traveling world champion. By the start of the 80s, though, all that would come to an end. By 1980, some of the smaller or quote-unquote weaker territories went out of business. Both Los Angeles and San Francisco territories went belly up due to a lack of younger wrestlers being elevated. Oh, so common in the world of professional wrestling. We'll learn that in the latter portion of the series. Also, the promoters... in or the promotions in Detroit and Amarillo, Texas, had an issue of this as well, of the lack of elevation of superstars. The AWA took over the California area, while Fritz von Erich of World Class took over the old Amarillo territory. And several promoters took turns promoting in Michigan. Cable television was beginning to change the face of pro wrestling in North America, as several promoters could get more exposure for their shows. The one leading the pack was Georgia Championship Wrestling, which was airing on WTBS. By the early 80s, Georgia Championship Wrestling was seen across the country due to it being the first of the super stations, like WGN in Chicago, to be put on the basic cable systems and Georgia Championship Wrestling stars like Paul Orndorff, Tommy Rich, Mr. Wrestling 2, Ted DiBiase, Brad Armstrong, Austin Idol, the Freebirds, and the Road Warriors, among others, were being seen by fans across the country who only read about them before the advent of cable television. In different wrestling magazines, they read, including the after mags, like Pro Wrestling Illustrated. They weren't the only ones, however. Fritz von Erich's world-class championship wrestling out of Dallas had a lucrative deal that well, with basically Pat Robertson's Trinity Broadcast Network, TBN, and they were on several TBN stations across the country outside of Dallas. Again, several of these stations were on cable. Joe Blanchard's Southwest promotion out of San Antonio was being shown on the fledgling USA Cable Network in 1981. However, after a couple of years, Blanchard's time slot on USA was bought out by the WWF. 
That will wrap up part one of WCW 101 as we look back at the history of World Championship Wrestling. Now, the alliance has been formed, and we look ahead to the second part of WCW 101, the NWA years thriving, and Jim Crockett Promotions and Georgia Championship Wrestling. We will dig deep as we move on to the 60s and 70s as the NWA was thriving in the North American territories and Georgia Championship Wrestling was getting ever so popular on WTBS, the Superstation. More to come on WCW 101. Students, get your notebooks ready for part two. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. I'm pretty stoked. A friend of mine told me about Gazelle.com. They paid me cash for my used iPhone. Cash I used to get my new iPhone? Before Gazelle, I would just keep my old phones in this drawer. Gazelle made it easy. Gazelle made it so easy. Shipping was free. Gazelle paid me fast. My phone was worth 150 bucks. What? Do yourself a favor. Get on your little www. Gazelle.com. You can find out a Gazelle. It is a website. Well, old schoolers, chapter one is in the books. On the next edition of Beyond the Bell, we cover the early days of the NWA, Georgia Championship Wrestling, and Jim Crockett Promotions. Find out what led to the creation of World Championship Wrestling. This edition's research is courtesy of the DDT Digest, HistoryOfWWE.com, IWHeadlines.com, LegacyOfWrestling.com, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, and the PW Torch. Audio clips are courtesy of the WWE's DVD release of the history of the World Heavyweight Championship, the rise and fall of World Championship Wrestling, and Audioblocks.com. Connect socially to Beyond the Bell on Facebook and Twitter at BTBCast. The official website for Beyond the Bell is BTBCast.com. And the brand new Beyond the Bell network can be found on YouTube under the username BTBCastNetwork. So that wraps it up, my pro wrestling family, my brethren. This is your host, Sean Beckerman, signing off. I'll see you for episode two of the history of World Championship Wrestling. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Bell. Remember to always keep it old school, my friends.